My name is Kyle, and this is Uplift, and I am uh, so glad that you're here. This message is also going to be streamed on Sunday mornings for our online Bible class called The Conversation. So if you're watching us on Sunday mornings, I am so glad that you're here. You can log into the chat and say hi. We're in a five-week series. This is the third week, so we're half over halfway uh, in a five-week series from the book of Philippians called A Fresh Perspective, writing some of this new year momentum by reading a letter from Paul that he wrote while incarcerated. I think if we're looking for fresh perspective, how to reorient our lives in a new year, uh, I think uh, this letter has a lot that uh, we, can, we can learn. I want to begin by showing you a map. I want to show you this map. You've probably seen maps like this before, especially in the back of your Bible. This is a map of what is known as Paul's second missionary journey. It details the directions and the stops of Paul and Silas on this journey. Now I've got a, I call it something different. I may call it something different tonight. I call them church planting trips. They're not just necessarily, they're not necessarily missionary journeys. Paul plants churches along the way. He took three big trips. This is the second of his church planting trips. Now, just a little information. Paul uh, was perhaps the foremost disciple of Jesus based solely upon these trips. He traveled more than any, uh, anyone else. And he, he believed, he believed in the saving power of Jesus. And he took this message across the eastern part of the Roman Empire some 2,000 years ago, traveling thousands of miles, countless of millions of people since these trips have come to know Jesus because of Paul. And those trips are really a large part of the New Testament in our Bible. Now, this is the second trip. This is the one the map is showing us. And this is the trip where he found himself in a city called Philippot. You can see it on here. Now, I'm going to tell you something here. I don't think that's where he wanted to go. I think when he was sitting down and he was planning out his trip, I don't really think this was part of his itinerary. And here's why I think this. I think the New Testament in the book of Acts tells us the moment that Paul's itinerary changed and put him on a course to Philippi. So I want to read this to you. This is from Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. We're going to show this map again in a minute. So let's read this together. Acts 16, verses 6 through 10. As they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to do so. So, verse 8, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Verse 10, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, what we just read is really one of the most pivotal writings in the entire New Testament. It's a course-changing moment that changed the course of the world because Paul didn't intend to go to Macedonia. Now, I want to show you this map again. Let's look at this map one more time. Now, on this map, the top left corner is Macedonia. Just kind of orient us a little bit. But I want you to see Paul's general direction once he entered Galatia, which is the upper right 
Uh, right third, you can see the word Galatia. That's the region where he started his trip. Now, he's going from Tarsus, and then he finds himself in Derby and Lystra, and Iconia, and Antioch. These were the places that Paul visited on his first church planting trip. Due west from Antioch is what city? Ephesus. That is where I think Paul wanted to go. In fact, most scholars believe that that was his intention. He was wanting to go to Asia Minor, to Ephesus, the prized city in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Here's why. Ephesus was the third largest city of the empire. And, get this, it was the communications hub of all of Rome. In Ephesus was the emperor's college of messengers. Everybody went there to learn how to take messages, protect them, and move them across the empire. So it's not hard to see why Paul wanted to go there as quickly as possible. He wanted to make Ephesus his headquarters. Maybe take some students enrolled in the emperor's college of messengers, make them disciples of Jesus, and turn them loose. I think that's what he wanted to do. But God, through the Holy Spirit, told Paul that he was forbidden to speak the word in Asia Minor. That's a strong word, forbidden. That word itself in the Greek language carries with it the idea that there was a specific moment when Paul realized he wouldn't be allowed to continue due west. It wasn't, in other words, it wasn't some vague notion or some gut instinct, something definitive happened. We don't know what it is, but we know that because of the language, something concrete happened. So this forbiddance led Paul northwest. You can see it on the map to the city of Troas. And then from Troas, he sailed across the Aegean Sea to Philippi. Let's read this. This is Acts chapter 16, verses 11 and 12, right after what we just read a minute ago. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. So this is how he finds himself in Philippi. That's how he gets there. God interrupted his plans and forced him to go to a city that was not on his radar, to Philippi. It's an influential city, but it's a city whose sole loyalty lay with Rome. In the book of Acts, it tells us a little bit about Paul's time in Philippi. And according to Acts chapter 16, we're not going to read it. If, it. if you have your Bibles open, you can see this. Here's who he met in Philippi. Three people. A fashion designer was the first. Her name was Lydia. She sold purple fabric to the stylist of the Roman emperor because only the Roman emperor could wear purple in the entire empire. Lydia was her name, and her entire enterprise, she and her enterprise, believed in Jesus. The second person we meet there, and he meets there, is a slave girl. We don't have her name, but we know in the story that she was possessed by an evil spirit. And Paul commanded the spirit to leave her in the name of Jesus. Pretty powerful moment, but that event led to Paul's arrest. Not only to his arrest, but a public flogging and imprisonment. Now we're going to come back to this in just a couple of minutes. 
And the third person that we see in the narrative in Philippi was a jailer. A jailer. The doors to their prison were open. Paul and Silas, they're in jail. There's an earthquake that happens. Their doors were burst open. Chains fell off their hands. And the jailer, thinking that an escape was imminent, decided to kill himself because he knew that if there was an escape, he was going to be put to death anyway. Well, Paul, Silas, they were still there. They stopped him. He cleaned their wounds. Eventually they were released. And the jailer believed in the name of Jesus as did his entire family. Now, these three people, listen to this. These three people would have never heard of Jesus had it not been for Paul and Silas. Had it not been for Paul being forbidden to journey to Ephesus. These are not meaningless appointments. Paul did something God called him to do. Now, that's critical. That's a big phrase. It's, it's the language of Acts chapter 16 in the passage we just read, verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding, look at this, that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. There was a calling. It was a calling. God called Paul to preach to Philippi. Which, let's follow this to its logical conclusion here, which meant that God called Paul to a city where because he would free a slave girl from evil, he would be flogged and incarcerated. I want you to understand that. God forbade Paul his desired destination and instead sent him straight into the fire. And Paul followed. Paul did it, believing that he was called to do so. He accepted the risk of an outcome not known to him. God asked Paul to take a risk, not a chance. That's the title of this message, by the way. He asked him to take a risk, but not a chance. So, But what is risk? So let's define the two because I think we get them confused. We think risk and chance are the same things. It's not true. Risk, risk is doing something that could involve danger in order to achieve a goal. Risk is an unknown journey for a known outcome. Let me say that again. Risk is an unknown journey for a known outcome. For Paul, the road to Philippi was unknown. But the outcome was clear. Share the gospel. That's what I got to do. I don't know what's going to happen to me, but that's what I'm going to do. Unknown journey, known outcome. God did not ask Paul to take a chance because taking a chance, not the same thing as taking a risk. Taking a chance is involving yourself in an event without an obvious design. It's an unknown journey with an unknown outcome. Right, so let's do it again. So risk is an unknown journey with a known outcome. Chance is an unknown journey with an unknown outcome. You don't know how it's going to wind up, right? I don't want you to confuse the two. And I want you also, we're going to do a little digression here, and this is pretty critical. I want you to be mindful of how chance is actually viewed in Scripture. So let's do a little deep dive here. In Scripture, chance, the idea of chance, of taking a chance, 
It's an idol. It's an idol to be worshiped instead of God. Now we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 65. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open there so you can write it out, mark it. This is big stuff. We find this in Isaiah chapter 65. And in this chapter, the Lord reminds his people of his grace. It's all over. It's all over the place. Some people say that grace is not in the Old Testament. It's right here. I'm going to read it to you. He's given them grace in spite of their avoidance and their sin. Now let's, let's read a little bit of this. Isaiah chapter 65, let's read verses two and three. Look at, what, look at what the Lord says. I spread out my hands. I am welcoming all day a rebellious people who walk in a way that's not good, following their own devices. Verse three, a people who provoke me to my face, continually sacrificing in gardens, and making offerings on brick. God is, bricks. God is saying, I'm welcoming to these people. And that's the tone of the chapter. It's a pretty fascinating chapter. Let me show you again. Let's dip our toes into verse nine. Look what he says. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob, from these bad people, from these rebellious people. That's what he's saying. And from Judah, I'll bring possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. So he's saying, look, I know you're rebellious. I'm still going to raise a people from you. I'm going to do that. He would never give up on his people. He would never forsake his people. But, but he remains steadfast for those who continue to deny him, who would instead worship at the altar of chance, of uncertainty, of flippancy. Look what the Lord says just a couple of verses later. This is big. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 11. But as for you who abandon the Lord and forget about worshiping at my holy mountain, who prepare a feast for the God called fortune and fill up wine jugs for the God called destiny, I predestine you to die by the sword. All of you will kneel down at the slaughtering block because I called to you and you didn't respond. I spoke to you and you didn't listen. You did evil before me and you choose to do what displeases me. Now you might have some footnotes in your Bibles about those two words, fortune and destiny. They are actually pagan gods that represented those things. So our English translations translate them for what they are, fortune and destiny. Here's what we learn. Isaiah 65, that bowing to chance, elevating chance as if it were a God, here called fortune and destiny, it's evil. It's evil. Now look, there's a whole lot to unpack here. We may do this at a later time. And I, I understand there's so, much, there's so much to chew on here. But for now, I want you just to remember the distinction. Taking a chance is blasphemous. It's saying that God is not operating with full sovereignty in the world. It's saying that lives and decisions are nothing more than a flip of a coin. God didn't ask Paul to take a chance. He asked him to take a risk. He called him to Philippi. And to say that God didn't know what would happen to him there, that's blasphemy. It's bowing to the God of destiny and fortune in a coin flip. God did not ask Paul to take a chance. And here's the, here's the big thing. Paul knew this. He walked in to Philippi with scars already on his back. He knew what he was in for. He knew what God was calling him to do. He knew that God was calling him to take a risk, an unknown journey, a known outcome. 
And I'm gonna tell you what, I'm sure he thought about it while in Philippi in a place where he and Silas were publicly shamed, stripped of their clothing and beaten until their backs were completely shredded. I guarantee you he thought about what God called him to do. And he took it. He knew full well this was the outcome to which God had called him. So years later, writing in jail again, writing to this church, the church he planted in this city, he had some encouragement. And he encouraged the believers with these words. And this is going to be our text for the rest of our times. Philippians chapter 2, it's printed on your order of worship. Verse 15, verses 15 and 16. Be blameless and innocent. Children of God. Be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. From experience, I'm going to show you this. Paul is talking about risk. And he sums it up by highlighting two certain outcomes. The first is identity, our identity, our distinguishability, our distinction. He asks that the Philippians be blameless and innocent in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. It's in verse 15. It's what he's asking. Now, listen, his description of this city, it's a little harsh from this great apostle, from the great man who put his own body on the line to tell the Roman Empire about Jesus. To hear Paul call Philippi a crooked and twisted generation almost feels like a glitch in the matrix a little bit. Because after all, Paul considered himself to be a father to Timothy. He considered himself to be a mother to the Thessalonians. I mean, this is a man of great compassion. But then it's easy to remember that this very crooked and twisted generation almost beat him to death. And what a tension in Paul's life. And look, it's in the midst of this generation. Oh, this is big. It's in the midst of this generation where Paul locates believers. He did not advocate retreat. He did not advocate attack. His teaching was to take a risk to stay right where you are. Now look, there are people called to travel across the world. Praise God. Some of you, regardless of your age, might still be called to do that. But there is as equally powerful a calling to stay, especially in a crooked and twisted generation. And this was the risk that Paul was asking of the Philippians. Stay, be seen, be identified. Sometimes risk isn't a destination. Sometimes risk is just Staying put. And listen, staying put is not without its unknowns because a crooked and twisted generation, there in the words, is a threat. So let's talk about this. In one of his first letters, maybe his first, it's in the book of Galatians, Paul actually talked about this generation. He gave it another phrase, gave it some different language. I want you to look with me. It's going to be on the screen from Galatians chapter 1. It's one of my favorite passages. So much gospel in Galatians 1 first few verses. Look at what he he wrote to the Galatians, to that region on our map. Grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us, look what he calls it, the present evil age. That's what he calls it here. According to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul writes that it's from this present evil age that we're delivered. That's what he says. Now there's two statements here. A present evil age and a crooked and twisted generation. These are Paul's commentary on the state of the world. We're within our rights to say that the world is evil. That it's a difficult place in which to live. We're in good company. That's what Paul called it. Our evil and crooked and twisted age and generation is the time and the place that demands sacrifices for everything but the Lord, for the good of humanity, for the good of business, for the good of government. This twisted and evil and corrupt generation says that our worth is based upon how much we give up. This twisted and evil and corrupt generation requires, requires us to become victims. And then let's our victimization become the currency with which we purchase status and power and influence. In other words, it's risky to stay. There is a temptation to be seen because of what we defend, especially if it's anything other than Jesus. It's risky to stay, to be seen and to shine like stars. It's risky. Paul's interactions in Philippi with a fashion designer and a slave and a jailer all in this city told him more than enough that the generation in which this church was born was crooked and twisted. Business and exploitation and fear were the idols to which these three people bowed before they came to know Jesus. Business. Lydia bowed to the altar of business and that she sold fabrics only to the emperor. What happens to Lydia when she confesses Jesus is Lord and not the Roman emperor? What does she stand to lose? It's a big deal. It's a question worth asking. Her income, her entire livelihood depended on her loyalty to a corrupt system. All of it. Exploitation. And that the freedom that was given to the slave angered her owners because they were exploiting her. They were using her. So she was afraid of that. What does she give up when she says, this isn't right? And fear. And that the jailer knew only death for the consequences of what happened in that jail. He was afraid, scared for his life. These were the idols to which this city bowed. These are the hallmarks of this corrupt and twisted generation. And they're, you know this, hallmarks have not changed, nothing different. We're often, we're often tempted to compromise our allegiance to Jesus for the good of other things, for our business, or exploiting other people, or even because we're afraid. But Paul said that the gospel's influence in this space is at stake because of our own behavior. So he says, take a risk. Be blameless. That doesn't mean be perfect. It means be identifiable as the ones who refuse to bow at altars built for anything other than Jesus. Be blameless. 
But you and I need to know this, and it's smart, that there are unknowns on this journey. Paul knew it. He knew what he was telling these people. There is a possibility. There is. Maybe even a probability of hurt and of danger, of loss of income, reputation, health, all of those things. Unknown journey, known outcome. This is not a chance. This is not a chance. It's not involvement in an unknown journey with an unknown outcome. There is a specific reason in this calling, and it's number two. It's our security. It's our security. I want us to look again at verse 16. You can find it on your order of worship. Look what he writes here. Holding fast. Be people who hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, underline that phrase, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Underline that phrase, day of Christ. There are all sorts of theological things here take a whole other time to talk about, but we're only going to look at one. Only going to look at one, and it's that phrase, day of Christ. Now, of course, of course, Paul wants to know that his life was not lived in vain. That's what he says, and, and he's not proud. He's not a, he's not a proud person. He's, in, he's kind of preaching them up here a little bit. He's preaching them up, but that's not his ultimate view here. His ultimate concern is the goal, the the day of Christ, the day of Jesus's glorious return. Paul is assuring us, just like he assured the Philippians, of our security, of the known outcome. This from a man with hundreds, maybe thousands of scars on his back for the sake of the gospel. From a man who knew, oh y'all, from a man who knew that the day of Christ would erase every hurt. He was banking on it. It would erase every scream that came out of his mouth in the town squares. It would erase every sadness and every disappointment. That's what he was looking for. Unknown journey, known outcome. Our security is that. He's asking us to take a risk. And it's, it's, it's the time, it's the very day where we stand, this day of Christ, it's when we stand with the Philippian believers. It's the day we stand with Paul himself. And when we say with Paul, it's worth it all. It's worth it all. The day of Christ, the day where he comes to take a corrupt generation and make it straight. It's a day of our hope and our vindication, and it's a known outcome. None of this, though, the Lord is leaving to chance. Let me encourage us to be risk takers. Shine like lights in the world. We can do it with the help of the Holy Spirit.